Well, Matthew chapter 19, let's just go ahead and, and turn there and read. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 12 this morning. Matthew 19, beginning in verse number 1. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And they said to him, Why then did Moses give or command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth and eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to the scripture this morning, we certainly need your help in understanding and applying these things. Lord, I pray that we would see your emphasis in this teaching, Lord, uh, as this question was asked. Lord, it's a question I think that's still being asked, um, but you show us, a different emphasis, uh, to come at it from a different angle, Lord. And you help us with this. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would grant us grace in whatever you've called us to in life, whether it touches on these subjects of, of marriage or singleness, or whether it touches on any other subject, that what you've given us to do, that we would see it as from you. But Lord, that you would also give us a heart of compassion for those who are struck with incredibly difficult circumstances. Uh, Lord, may we see you speak here, and may we walk away edified because of your words, your word alone. You have the words of eternal life, and we pray that we would trust in you. And in this we pray, Christ's name, amen. Well, as we come to Matthew 19, we find Jesus beginning his his ultimate journey from Galilee, where uh, the majority of his life and ministry have taken place, and he's traveling then down to Jerusalem. And uh, now this isn't the only time that Jesus went to Jerusalem. It is the only time, I think, in Matthew that we see it recorded. But John's gospel, of course, if you're familiar with it, records a number of times Jesus would have traveled to Jerusalem for the various feasts of Israel. Um, but this, this specifically would be his last time. And that's important in Matthew's narrative because the rest of the book now builds toward the ultimate picture, the ultimate sense in which the gospel comes to life. And that's the death, 
the burial and resurrection. So Jesus now is on a road to his passion, so to speak. He has been the whole time, but really now he's fulfilling what he's told his disciples back in Matthew 16, even that the son of man must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, be, uh, be killed and then rise again the third day. And we read in those verses that he travels down away from Galilee and he entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And probably what that means is from Galilee in the north, he took an easterly route on the other side of the Jordan River, which was a common travel route for the Jews to go from Galilee to Jerusalem. Uh, so that's that's what that's speaking of. That's his his route down. And on the way down through, just because he's left Galilee, it does not mean that his teaching or his ministry is over. We see that large crowd, large crowds followed him. And Matthew records that he healed them. And Mark, if you read his parallel, says obviously that he taught them as well. So Jesus is not finished with his ministry. Uh, it's still marching on, but it will take on a new and fuller sense as the chapters unfold. The previous chapter then, Matthew 18, and Jesus' teaching on humility, on forgiveness, would be, as we have recorded, Jesus' last teaching in the region of Galilee. The rest of the book leads to the crucifixion. Now, as you look at the rest of the passage that we have before us this morning, you might be tempted to think, boy, Pastor Aaron really has an ax to grind. Two passages dealing with divorce in one year. And uh, I assure you that I don't have an ax to grind when it comes to that. I, I hope it's been made known that in our preaching here, we don't really stick with hobby horses. And we're simply coming to this passage in Matthew as it comes to us. And uh, I'll be honest, that the fact that Matthew does have these two passages was not a selling point to me. In fact, Matt would tell you that even a couple days, I half-jokingly asked him if he would like to preach this Sunday instead of me. Uh, so that he could have a turn with this. But I will tell you that there's no strange joy or fixation on teaching on a subject like this. But as they come in the text, uh, we'll find that there is great importance in dealing with them. Now, if you were with us about a year ago, last summer, you'll remember that in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, we covered the essential teaching, the essential elements of Jesus' teaching on these things. That was found in Matthew 5, 31 and 32. And that passage really is repeated almost verbatim here in Matthew chapter 19. So this is really just a greater and more drawn out dealing with the subject. And everything we read, both in Matthew 5, Matthew 19, and in the parallel passages in the other gospel records, we find that Jesus has held the sanctity and importance of the marriage covenant in very high regard really in the highest regard. And as we read beginning in verse three, where the Pharisees came to ask him this question, we find that they were really asking in order to trip him up. The text says they asked in order to test him. Now we'll do this in abbreviated form so I don't repeat myself too much from a year ago. You could go back and listen to that sermon as well if you'd like. But you might remember we, we mentioned those two schools of thought from two rabbis which were popular around Jesus' time, uh, Shammai and Hillel. And you'll remember that Shammai was the conservative rabbi whose teaching on divorce was that there was only divorce allowed in the case of fornication. 
while Rabbi Hillel, uh, who has had the more loose interpretation, interpreted the passage that they're referring to here in Deuteronomy 24 as meaning that a man could, could divorce his wife for any reason at all. Um, and actually, in, in his teaching, it was stated that a man could even divorce his wife for, for burning his dinner. So that was obviously two extreme sides of the argument. And most people, it seems, took one side or the other. So there was tension in that day. And the question at hand from these Pharisees was, is Jesus on the side of Shemai, the, the conservative side or is he on the side of Hillel, the more loose or liberal side? If he sided with Rabbi Shammai, he certainly would make enemies with many men who had taken uh, Hillel's teaching as a, a reason to divorce their wife at will, so to speak. And if he sided with Rabbi Hillel, he would certainly alienate those who would hold to the more conservative view. And to top it off, we certainly could see the human element of this question, where these Pharisees were probably hoping that they could use Jesus' answer to either bolster their own view or to cast down the view of another. As in, they're saying, if we can get Jesus to take a side here, we can use that as an argument for or even against that position. We find then that these men came to Jesus with the, the concept of divorce really, which was really the privilege in that day for a Jewish man. They came with that idea as, as a given, as a, as a granted reality. And it really was just that in Jewish law and order. It was a man's prerogative to give what was called a, a letter or a certificate of divorce. And uh, even if a woman could petition the court that there should be a divorce, it was still uh, the husband's responsibility to give that letter, which would include the words, she is free to marry any man. Interestingly enough, as we come to this sort of gotcha question, one of several that we've seen in Matthew so far, and a question where any answer that Jesus gives is sure to step on some toes, Jesus went back further than rabbis Shammai and Hillel. He even went back further than the words that the Pharisees quoted from Deuteronomy 24. He went back to the foundation of marriage itself. And with the remainder of our time this morning, that is primarily what I want to do. I want to take Jesus' lead and, and take his focus on not only the key arguments here, but rather highlighting and making the focus God's design in all of this. And I want to encourage you today, as you come to this passage, as we are often tempted to do, not to come to it hoping to prove or disprove one view of divorce and remarriage or another. There are certainly many interpretations of the exact reasons and allowances for divorce and remarriage. And we'll cover some of those briefly, but that is not, there. that was not the point of Jesus' teaching. Jesus' intention was not to give the answer to the question that the Pharisees asked, but rather to point to them that they were looking at it 
in the wrong perspective. And oftentimes we're guilty of the same. We become like the Pharisees in arguing over this to the, to the demise of actually fighting for the foundation of marriage itself. Now, just as a way of introduction, we, of course, know that the divorce rate is staggering in our nation. There's no question about that. Interestingly, though, it's actually now, within the last year or two, at a 50-year low. And at first glance, that might seem like a win. But if you look a little deeper, there's more to it than that. Consider that just in the last 30 years, in our country alone, the number of marriages per year has gone from about two and a half million to 1.6 million. That's a staggering decline. Around 900,000 fewer marriages taking place in our country each year as compared to just 30 years ago in 1990. And some of you right then are thinking 1990 was over 30 years ago. Yes, it was. But anyways, That's a staggering decline, and it's even more staggering when we consider that in the same time frame, the population just of our country has increased by around 85 million people. So there are no fewer people to be married. And if you have any insight into society at all, you know that there are no fewer couples who engage in romantic and even sexual relationship. So why the decline? Why the decline? We see, at least in our greater culture, a failure to look at love and relationship through God's eyes, a failure to take seriously what God has created in the covenant of marriage with the ideas of promise and commitment. The foundation then of marriage, which you could argue easily, is really the foundation of society in general, is being ignored or downplayed. And Jesus' answer to the Pharisees really hones in on that topic. So kind of a main idea as we look at this today. Hard decisions come because of human brokenness and hardness of heart. That's what Jesus tells us. But we must look at marriage the way God intended it, or the way God designed it. So the first thing we see then is just that. It's the foundation for marriage. Again, we read that when Jesus answered this question, or or at least responded to the Pharisees, he went straight back to Genesis. He asks them in verse 4, have you not read? Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? There is no question, of course, whether or not the Pharisees knew the words that Jesus quoted there from one of the first paragraphs in the first book of Moses. Jesus wasn't doubting their reading. He was showing them that their emphasis was wrong. And he's going to tell them that rather looking at this question through the lens of when is divorce permissible, 
He showed them rather to look at the question of divorce through the lens of God's design for marriage. Turn with me, if you will, to Genesis 2, or you can follow on the screen. I believe it'll, it could be up there. Genesis 2, beginning in verse number 18, because this is the passage that Jesus goes back to. Of course, Genesis 1 gives us the great summary of events in creation, uh, where God says he created man and woman. And Genesis 2, toward the end of the chapter, gives us the specific instance. We find that after God had created all these things and had created man on the sixth day, somewhere in that process, he says, verse 18, Genesis 2, it is not good that the man, Adam, should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever man called the living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all livestock and the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took out one of his ribs and closed up its place with the flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. There's a valuable, a really critical way in which the, the text of Genesis unfolds here because there is an acknowledgement for the first time in the two chapters there of creation that something is not good. God said it is not good that the man should be alone. So there was then, we read, another creation. A rib was taken from Adam. We don't know exactly what that process entailed, but we know that there was a special creation of the same kind, bone of bone, flesh of flesh. And as soon as we see two from one, which is what we see as God created Eve, we then see from the same source, one from two. So follow that, two from one, so mankind, and women, obviously included in that, humankind created as, as one kind of being, one race, one creation. Yet there are two humans. We see then God's words telling them that there was really then one from those two. And that was the institution of marriage. The words of Moses that followed Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and become one flesh. And Jesus is quoting from that passage. And of course, he adds to it, which he can do, the famous words which are quoted at almost every Christian wedding ceremony. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. 
So that we would read is the foundation of marriage. But of course, if we know Genesis at all, we know that that foundation really goes back even further to Genesis 1. Look at Genesis 1, beginning in verse 26. God said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish and the birds and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So Genesis 2 gives the detail of why there's man and woman. But Genesis 1 gives a great overview of God's purpose for mankind. And first we see that mankind, which is both male and female, are created in God's image. And they're created for a purpose, to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, and to have dominion. It is part of the creation blessing and the creation mandate that the purpose of our existence includes these things. Fruitfulness, filling, and dominion. And it's no shock then, as we read chapter 2, that the way God designed and intended that filling and multiplication would take place through the union which God created of a man and one woman. One man and one woman. Male and female created in God's image. There is something incomplete by God's own determination in Adam or in man being alone. Adam alone was not good. But Adam then with Eve is very good. There is something of the very image of God that is unique in relationship and maybe even most unique in the fullness and the blessing of a marriage between one man and one woman. There's an instrumental vitality of this God-designed institution of mankind and womankind, one man, one woman together for the flourishing of creation. Now that, of course, includes the propagation of children, of, of filling the earth in that way, of multiplying. But there is a fullness even in the relationship, in the oneness, in the unity. The words we read are, therefore man shall leave and become one flesh with his wife. Leave his father and mother and become one flesh with his wife. Of course, that one flesh union is expressed physically, but just as there are physical and spiritual realities in all of life, there is a physical and a spiritual reality in marriage so that we can truly say when a man and woman come together in this godly union, 
there is a real sense in which God has done something. And there is a real sense in which the image of God is portrayed in that relationship. Hence the words of Jesus, that what God has joined together. And so, for that covenant and that union to be broken is never a light thing. It is breaking not just a physical bond or a legal relationship as we have in our culture, but it is breaking something that goes beyond our visible world, to put it in a different sense. Now, when the Pharisees asked this question of Jesus, did they know all of this? Yes, I'm sure they did. Did they forget it? Probably not in the truest sense, but in their motive to test Jesus and to look at marriage from the perspective of when divorce is allowable, they had neglected, I think, the true weight of that. Now, like the Pharisees, do we know these things? Of course we do. And I get it in repeating all that information that I just gave you. There is a sense in which I'm carrying the coals to Newcastle, right? I'm preaching to the choir. You might have even muttered under your breath, I know this. We've heard this before. But Jesus is showing us that it's critical that we uphold in our thinking this perspective. We look from here outward. It's critical in our, in our thinking, in our churches, in our discipleship of young people, especially of young couples, that we uphold this sanctity and wonder of marriage. That marriage which finds its foundation in the creation, blessing, and mandate itself, and in the very creation of man and woman. That's the foundation. But what about when it's broken? That's the second thing. What about when it's broken? We could say that the foundation, that picture, that that design of marriage is God's will. It is his revealed will. And on the other hand, we can say it is not ever God's design or even desire that a married couple joined in that sense would be divorced. Much like Adam by himself was not good, there is a way in which we could say of any divorce It's not good. It's not what we wanted. It's not what God wanted. And Jesus emphasizes that when he's asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? Jesus' answer was essentially this. God intended marriage to be permanent. 
Now, as I say that, I want to be clear that by no means is the emphasis on the importance of marriage meant to be a shame for those who have gone through a divorce. It's not meant, and don't hear me, and God forbid any of you place an individual who's been divorced in a lower class. No. What the Pharisees were doing, though, and why Jesus had to give this answer, is they were making the argument all about that question. They made, really, divorce the focus. I've said it before, and I'll say it again here. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. In fact, in many cases, the divorce itself is not a sinful act. It's usually a recognition of a, of a host of sinful actions or a pattern of sinfulness that has broken that marriage. Now, one reason why I think Jesus didn't intend here to give a full answer uh, or a full treatment on every instance where you might wonder about this question or ask this question is that Paul in 1 Corinthians adds another one. We believe, of course, he did that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, it would be rather bold then to say, no, Jesus, there is another instance where divorce is okay. Paul gives the instance in 1 Corinthians 7. He says in verse 12, to the rest I say, not I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. The unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In, any such, in such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So this sexual sin that we read in Matthew 19 and Deuteronomy 24 is not the only place where Scripture gives a cause for a divorce. This case in 1 Corinthians 7, which has come to be termed as abandonment, is another clear case where the covenant has been broken. And it's interesting in those two examples, both of, of sexual sin and this abandonment, it's a breaking of the fundamental description that God gives of marriage. First, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. In a case where, for example, a man goes against that, abrogates that, departs, flees, disowns his wife, he's gone against the very description of what God says marriage is. And in the same way, in the one flesh union, when there is a bringing in of another, through sexual sin or fornication, that also breaks the very definition of what that union was meant to be. 
So there are reasons, there are grounds for divorce where you recognize that the covenant is broken. But just because there are reasons where it does take place, it does not mean that we enter marriage or even view it through that lens. We can't enter marriage saying, well, I'll always have the the out of divorce if things don't work out. No, rather, Jesus is saying, we enter marriage and we look at marriage with God's design in mind. Now, the follow-up question that the Pharisees asked is one that, that we would ask too. Why then did Moses give this command for a letter of divorce? We won't spend as much time looking at Deuteronomy 24 as we did last time, but suffice it to say, Moses did not give a command, you shall divorce your wife if this takes place or this takes place. Rather, he made a concession. And that's what Jesus says here. Look back in Matthew 19, verse 7. Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce? Jesus said to them, verse 8, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Moses did not give a command for divorce. He gave a concession for when this marriage was already broken by unchastity, that a man should make the divorce official to to free and protect the innocent party. But Jesus acknowledges even here that sometimes, even though marriage is to be an unbreakable bond, the bond is actually broken. Specifically here, the bond is broken by by sexual sin, fornication. And I have to say that over this question even, there is much debate among theologians, pastors, and within churches about what what exactly Jesus was talking about there. What kind of sin allows for divorce? And my purpose today is not to answer that question once and for all. Um, I will say that when we venture into those debates, we should be careful as we quickly take sides either taking a rigid or callous view of divorce or a loose and casual view of it, that those who view it rigidly are often guilty of seeing divorced Christians as second rate, as failures. Well, on the other hand, those who view it as casual and loose can be guilty of celebrating divorce or running to it quickly. You might hear someone say, I dumped that girl like a sack of rocks she was. Even if the divorce was necessary, there should still be a mourning. There should still be a broken heart because God's design was was thwarted by human sinfulness. In that case, 
Notice Jesus says, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, allowed you. That is, when it comes down to it, the the reason that divorce takes place is that. It is because of the hardness of hearts. Whether the case of a divorce is for adultery, abandonment, or any other sinful reason, someone's heart was hardened. Now, maybe there are cases where both hearts were hard. And there probably are cases where where one or both parties should have pushed for the marriage to be preserved, or they, they should have sought restoration. I have no doubt that that is true. But hardness of heart often leads to, and even sometimes necessitates, in extreme cases, this decision. Now, we often quote from Malachi 2, verse 16, where the Lord says, I hate divorce. And that is true. And some of you who have been through a divorce probably would say the same thing, that you hate it. Why? Because you hate everything that led to it. You hate the deceit. You hate the adultery. You hate the lying. You hate whatever it was. And I think that is what is behind God's words there too. Not that he hates divorce, so therefore it must never take place, and he will wickedly or he will vehemently judge anybody who gets divorced. No, I think he hates it because of what leads to it. Now, why do I think that? Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 6 through 8. There's a little instance here where the Lord, of course, is speaking to the prophet Jeremiah. And he gives them this picture about Israel. The Lord said to me, Jeremiah 3, 6, in the days of King Josiah. Now hear the words of Yahweh. Have you seen what she did, that faithless one Israel? How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the harlot? And I thought after she has done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yes, God hates divorce. Because in a very symbolic and poetic, yet a very real way, God had to give his own people, Israel, a certificate of divorce. He recognized that in their idolatry, in their wandering, which he calls adultery, that they didn't want to be in that covenant anymore. So God doesn't call for us to to push for divorce, to advocate for it, to, to seek it out at any cost, but he recognizes that it does take place sometimes, and it is a tragic thing, and the events that lead to it are tragic. And I think Jesus' words to us here call us to the same kind of view. We should hate it. 
not because of a stigma, not because of shame for from our brothers and sisters in the Lord, but we should hate divorce because it was the last step in a broken covenant. We should hate it because after all these attempts have been made, the marriage failed. We should hate it because God's design has been thwarted by sin. And if we're walking with somebody in a difficult case, and after these attempts have been made, and the divorce becomes necessary, our heart is not rejoicing, but our heart is broken. Now, the next question, of course, that comes after that would be, well, what about what about remarriage? We should start by understanding that the letter of divorce, the certificate of divorce that was given in the Old Testament that Jesus refers to here and the Pharisees do, it assumed that remarriage would take place. In fact, that was the purpose of it. The, the words on it were to be written, she is free to marry any man, if you look back in the Jewish customs. <clears throat> it was to free the divorced wife from the former husband so he couldn't hold her, even though there was no relationship there, he could somehow in his sin and his hatred still hold her and say, no, she's my wife, she's mine. It was to free. It was, it was for the good of, a, of either an innocent party or of, of a woman who in that day would have been very, very much put down in culture if she could not be married. And we asked the question, <clears throat> Should remarriage take place after every divorce? I would have to say with the words of Scripture that no, probably not. There are probably many cases which, difficult as it may be, that there should not be a remarriage. Not in every case. Are, now, are there debates over when it can take place? Yes, there are, and if you're looking for me to give the final pronouncement on this, which has been debated for thousands of years in this sermon, I'll disappoint you because I'm not gonna give a final pronouncement here. Um, there are no two cases which are alike. For instance, our church doesn't have any official statement or a document that covers every instance of why a divorce might happen and whether a marriage is allowed in that case. And I would say that scripture actually doesn't give every instance either. Every instance is a case-by-case -case scenario. For every broken marriage, there is a unique trail of brokenness and sinfulness that led to it. There's always the question of who's innocent, who's guilty. There's a question of what kind of sin led to it. There's all of these things which couldn't answer in one sermon or 10. There are many tragic and horrible things that the Bible doesn't touch on when it comes to brokenness in marriage. For instance, what about abuse? What about, what if a man attempts to murder his wife? The scripture doesn't answer that. In the case of some of these things in Israel, the question was answered because somebody who murdered or committed adultery was supposed to be put to death. We don't put people to death for adultery today. 
So it's not as simple. What about serial lying? What if, what if a, a spouse horribly mistreats children? What if in all this they are called, they are as claiming to be believers, they are called by their spouse and two or three witnesses and the whole church to repent, and they don't. There are many elements involved. There are many cases which would at least require or necessitate a separation for the safety of a spouse or a child. We would never say that a woman needs to stay with her abusive husband no matter what. And if you view scripture as that simplistic, I think it's just that. It's You're seeing it as too simplistic. There are many cases which require, again, seeking for the, the guilty party to repent. And you would hope for restoration. By God's grace, many marriages which have been broken by unfaithfulness have come back together and thrive. And in the same way, many people who have faced broken marriage and even divorce go on to live full lives, sometimes being remarried and finding peace in that in the Lord, or sometimes going on as single. Now, interestingly, the passage turns there because in verse number 10, we read, after hearing all this discussion, the disciples say to him, if such is the case of man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Now, some of you married people might be thinking the same thing. It would be easier some days to be single. It would be easier to have not been married than to keep up this covenant for better and for worse. And some are called to bear under circumstances that are difficult, but not detrimental. But some are not given that strength. Even still though, as Jesus goes on, he says not everyone can receive this saying but only to those whom it is given. And there's a question of whether Jesus is speaking of the statement the disciples made that it's better that a man not marry, or whether he's talking about his words, that a marriage is intended to be permanent. Either way, we could say there are some from God who it is, which it is given that they are never to be married. And Jesus says here, that if that takes place, whether they've been made eunuch by men or, or naturally or for the kingdom, let the one who receives this or is able to receive it. And God might call some to a difficult road, whether it's a marriage that is difficult, but it's, it's worth saving or whether it's a marriage that you can't save, whether it's singleness, either by design or even naturally. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. 
But what we can say is if you're married, your first view should be to fight for God's design. That should be the perspective that we look from. That is the ideal. That is God's revealed will. If you're fighting for your marriage, but your spouse has given up, you can at once recognize that it was not God's desire for that covenant to be broken, but also to recognize that there are times when it is broken. And it's okay to mourn that. If you're divorced and you've been remarried, now is not the time to wonder whether you should have done that or not, okay? Fight for this marriage until the day you die. Don't go on in guilt if you somehow think that that was the wrong decision now. You probably don't because God often gives grace. Even if in a moment it was a wrong decision, he often gives grace for us to live peacefully and he blesses those relationships. If you're single and you find out after years and years that God has called you to remain such, then live it out for the kingdom. In fact, whatever state you're in, live it out for the kingdom. I would add to it Paul's words when he's talking about those who have a difficulty of conscience with, in that case, it was eating certain things or not eating them. He said, if you can eat it by faith, in faith, do it. If not, then don't do it. Whatever you do, do it in faith and do it all for the glory of God. And regardless of what your path in life has looked like, whether glorious or tragic, we can still also fight for God's design to be upheld in our culture, in our church, and in the relationships of those we love. Lord Jesus, help us with these things.